0: I bet it's true for you because I know that it's certainly true for me. That most of the time when I get into the deepest weeds, spiritually speaking, in my life, it's not because I lacked some sort of new information, some sort of new insight, new doctrine, or a new Bible verse that I'd never heard before. It's usually because I forgot something that I already knew. It's usually because I forgot something that I had begun believing a long time ago, but somewhere along the way, my heart had forgotten. My heart had stopped believing, and I hadn't noticed. When we baptize someone, that person, of course, receives the water. But the call to remember is for all of us. The call to remember goes out to everyone. Because the same gospel that we hear spoken all the time, the same gospel we hear preached every week, the same gospel we tell to our children throughout the week in our homes is held out again to us in the water. It's held out to us in a form that can engage our memories through another sense. The same gospel calling us to remember that we're washed. Calling us to remember that we're cleansed. Calling us to remember that the refreshing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has come and taken us from the parched land of our sin and restored us. And so church, how does meditation upon our baptism draw us closer to our God? Baptism, therefore does call to mind and keep in remembrance the great benefit of God performed to mankind. For we are all born in the pollution of sin and are the children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, does freely purge us from our sins by the blood of his Son, and in him does adopt us to be his children. And by a holy covenant does join us to himself and does enrich us with diverse gifts that we might live a new life. All these things are sealed up unto us in baptism. And would you please stand? Well, when I was a kid, before Ashton Kutcher was punking people on his show, you would walk up to a friend and you would raise up your hand to receive a high five. And just when that other kid was raising up his hand to give you that high five, you would pull your hand back real quick and slick back your hair and go, "Sight," <laughs> Leaving the other person with their hand still in the air. It was a very potent tool in building up a 12-year-old superiority complex, let me tell you. But now that I'm 36, I still haven't outgrown it. So I thought that it would be fun this morning because after you've heard several people now from this pulpit tell you that we're done and finished with the book of Revelation, I'm going to say, psych, and take us back into this incredible book one more time. Or is it going to be for the last time? Now you don't know, do you? Well, we're going to spend time in the only church letter written by Jesus that we haven't covered yet. The church to the letter at Sardis. And it's in at the beginning, actually, of Revelation chapter 3. And you can see it in your bulletin as well, written out for you on page 7. Page 7 of your bulletin. And at Sardis, we find a church that's struggling with many of the same issues that we struggle with. Forgetfulness of the gospel. Spiritual boredom. An apathy. A wrong self-image built on performance. Making it a church that's like a church of every age. A church that's always in the need of revival. Of spiritual awakening. Waking up. This is the good news of Jesus to a sleepy church. Almost ready to die in its sleep. But a church that's called to remember and wake up by experiencing the truths of the gospel afresh. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father, before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, Father, again, we come this morning confessing that we need you through the Son and by the Holy Spirit to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, to wake up our hearts, to give us spiritual awakening, To make the wonderful truths that you proclaim for us on every page of your word fresh and new for us again. To give us a sense and a feeling of your love for us given to us in Jesus. To give us a sense, a new feeling of our desperation. And yet to follow it up with a new sense of the salvation we have in Christ. Bring these things home Bring these things to our hearts once again, new. We ask these things in the name of the Son and by the Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. It's caused by the bacterium Mysobacterium lepromatosis, it's also called Hansen's disease but it's most commonly referred to as leprosy. It's probably how most of us know it. For many of us, our only familiarity with leprosy is probably from the stories that we've heard from Scripture. Various verses in Leviticus tell the Israelite community what to do in dealing with various cases of leprosy. Naaman, the Syrian general, has leprosy in 2 Kings chapter 5, and he's later healed of it. Jesus, of course, heals lots of individuals with leprosy in the Gospels. At one point, he heals ten men with leprosy at once in Luke chapter 17. But what makes leprosy so awful are two things. First, the bacteria slowly begins to affect nerve endings. So that a person begins to lose all sense of feeling in their hands or their feet or other infected places. A person slowly goes numb all over. But secondly, a person with the leprosy bacteria in their body can appear normal and have little to no symptoms. Sometimes going anywhere from 5 to 20 years with no symptoms that they actually have leprosy. And so such a person can walk around with a reputation for health, a reputation before others that they are in fact healthy, no one else knows. And of course they themselves cannot know what it is that they have. But in reality they can be slowly dying on the inside, slowly moving towards numbness. And while Jesus doesn't mention leprosy in this letter written to Sardis in Revelation 3, you can't help but think of it when you read his diagnosis for this church. In verse 1, he says, I know your works, I know your true condition, Sardis. You have the reputation of being alive, you appear to yourselves and to others to be healthy. You appear to yourselves and to others to be a vibrant community, but in fact, you were dead. And here Jesus uses some hyperbole. Because the church at Sardis wasn't completely dead. Because in the next verse, Jesus calls them to wake up, to strengthen what even remains. And in verse 4, he says that there are still some faithful Christians in their midst. But Jesus uses the word dead as a strong warning. To show them the seriousness of their spiritual leprosy. And so we find in Sardis, we find in this church from 2,000 years ago, a problem common to churches in all places and times, just like all the problems that we've encountered, encountered in the other churches in Revelation, the other seven letters or six letters. The problem with the church at Laodicea, if you remember, was her self sufficiency, her blindness to her dependence on Christ, her blindness to her need to live and walk in dependence on Christ. Churches like Thyatira and Pergamum struggled with compromising their morals and their sound doctrine. Ephesus lost her love towards Christ and others, and they used their good doctrine like a club, like a standard of measurement, like a new law, to show who is in and who's out. Smyrna and Philadelphia were persecuted and suffered at the hands of a culture that was rejecting them. But Sardis struggles with something else. Sardis struggles with a strong self-image. A strong reputation that actually hides her apathy. Her struggle is characterized as apathy, indifference, spiritual numbness which gnaw away at the soul like an unseen leprosy and ends up in Jesus' words in death. It doesn't seem that the problem at Sardis was bad doctrine. At least it doesn't seem that way. It doesn't say that in the text. They seem to know the right answers to the right questions. If they were asked, they'd probably do well on a theology exam. They do well in giving good answers to catechism questions. It doesn't seem like they were tolerating immorality, at least in a scandalous sense or an obvious way. And so it may be that their sound doctrine and maybe their good morals were part of their good reputation, at least in their own eyes. The problem with Sardis is that deep down, unknown to others and even unknown to herself, she was spiritually bored. She didn't really care about a close, passionate walk with Jesus. Deep down, really, truly. She would say that she would, of course. But deep down, she didn't. She had come to define faithfulness as continuing to exist. She was like a once great athlete who had a lot of dusty medals on her wall and trophies and the trophy case, but lately had become more of a professional couch potato. Addicted to Netflix. And so Jesus offers her exactly what she needs. He tells her, wake up. Come back to life, my people. Another way to say it is Jesus calls Sardis to revival. He calls Sardis to renewal deep down in her heart and soul. And so this morning and next week, we're going to take a look at revival. What some church leaders like Tim Keller and others have called gospel renewal. And this morning, we're going to look at renewal corporately in the life of the church. And next week, we're going to look at it more individually in our individual lives through an Old Testament psalm. But let's take a closer look for a second at what Sardis is dealing with... ...because the spiritual leprosy that Sardis has... ...it's common to all churches, it's common to individual Christians too, to all of us. It's not just her special problem... ...any more than any of the other churches' problems were particular to just them. Sardis had become indifferent and uncaring about the radical nature of gospel living. She'd become uncaring about, in other words, her calling... She'd stopped witnessing to the vitality and the transforming power of being redeemed by Christ to the world around her. And really, when you boil down Jesus' issues with all seven churches in Revelation, his problem is the way in which they have stopped properly and faithfully testifying to him and the world around them. And so Sardis was Christian in name. Christian by reputation, but her attitude towards the culture, her posture, her deeds before the culture, her proclamation to the culture, didn't bear the marks of Christ. And this is why Jesus says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God in verse 2. But here's the thing that you can't miss. Her lack of a strong witness to the culture around her was the result of something else first. Her lack of a strong witness, in other words, was the symptom. Jesus calls her attention to it. It was the symptom, but it wasn't the disease. Her disease was apathy and boredom towards her own relationship to God. Because waning communion, waning fellowship, with God typically precedes, it typically comes before waning obedience to God. Waning fellowship and communion with God typically precedes waning obedience to God. And so here's the question. Why do we become apathetic in our communion with God? And the answer is because we're very, very forgetful In our relationship with God. But hang on. Because by using the word forgetful. By throwing that word out there. I'm taking a little bit of a risk of being misunderstood. Because when I say forget. I don't mean that we forget information about God. Or that we forget official teachings about the gospel. Or official teachings about sin and grace and what Jesus has done for us. I don't mean that we forget the right answers to our catechism questions. Certainly that can happen. But that's not what I mean this morning. I mean that we forget what it means to actually experience the truths of those teachings even if we can mentally recite and recall all the teachings themselves. And so biblically, spiritual forgetting, it's not primarily about information. Spiritual forgetting is not primarily about cognition, about what your mind grasps, about what your rationality understands. Rather, spiritual forgetting is about too much distance between you And it's experiencing those truths that you already know and confess and believe. That's what forgetting is, biblically speaking. Too much distance between you and actually experiencing the truths that you already know and can confess. So keep your finger there on Revelation chapter 3. We're going to come back to Revelation 3. But we're going to flip all the way back to the left in your Bible, to the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy for a second. Be ready to come back to Revelation 3, but for a second, go back to chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, if you have your Bible. Chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, verse 9. And God says through Moses in Deuteronomy 4, verse 9, he says through Moses to his people, to Israel, he says, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And now quickly skip forward to chapter eight. Stay in Deuteronomy, but just go to chapter eight, starting in verse eleven. Deuteronomy eight, verse eleven, God says much much the same thing again. Take care lest you who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there's no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say, in your heart... My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. In both passages in Deuteronomy, forgetting is not primarily about mental information, it's about ceasing to experience already known truth, as he says again and again and again in these passages, in the heart in the heart, and then following through with heart-embraced truth in our obedience. God is saying, don't forget. Always remember, not the fact, not the fact that at one point you were in a state of desperation, but instead, don't forget what it means to feel desperate. Why? Why? Because you will always be desperate and in need of me. Even if it doesn't always feel like it, you will be. And always remember, rehearse with your minds, with your hearts, and with your bodies what it felt like. And what it continues to feel like now when I meet you in your desperation with my salvation. Remember the fear of the Egyptian chariots. About to crush you. Before I parted the Red Sea. Not that there were Egyptian chariots. Remember what it felt like to look at them. Bearing down upon you. Remember this stabbing pain. Of your stomachs in the desert. Before I sent you manna. Remember how your tongue. Stuck to the roof of your mouths. Before I gave you cold water. Out of rocks. And then remember. What salvation felt like and who gave it to you in those moments. Because spiritual forgetting, it's it's like a piano virtuoso who hasn't played in 30 years. She hasn't forgotten how to read music. She hasn't forgotten what the notes mean on the score when she looks at it. She hasn't forgotten her musical theory or her musical history or the music of her favorite composers. She hasn't forgotten any of those things. What she's forgotten can't be explained in purely mental or cognitive terms. Because what she's forgotten is what it feels like to have her hands glide up and down the keys, never missing a note and long, fast runs up and down the scale. What she's forgotten is how to make the piano sing like a bird softly in this moment and then thunder like a storm in the next one. What she's forgotten is what it feels like to be a piano player, even though she might be able to talk about it all day long. And so, in Deuteronomy, God tells his people to remember their past need as a way of getting in touch with their ever-present need, as Colin said earlier. And this would be hard for them to do when they were so adrift in blessings. Because God knew that in a state of blessing, the Israelites would begin to believe their own propaganda, their own reputation of having no needs, of being alive, being self-sufficient, that they would begin to become spiritually numb to their neediness, even when they were close to death. And this... This right here is what Jesus is saying to the Christians at Sardis. He's saying the same thing to them. Remember then, verse 3, Revelation 3, 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus borrows a very emotional, visceral image from Sardis' past here in verse 3. Because although the city of Sardis boasted having very, very tall, thick, huge, impregnable walls, the city had actually been sacked twice by enemy armies. So her, the walls of the city were legendary, but she'd been sacked and destroyed twice, first by the Persian army, in 547 BC and then by a Greek army in 214 BC and both times it happened because the watchmen on the walls had failed to detect the invaders while they quietly snuck up the cliffs like a thief would do and so Jesus is saying look the, the reputation of Sardis's walls it didn't save them when their guards had become numb Had become forgetful of what guard duty is supposed to feel like. So wake up. Jesus calls this bored church to spiritual awakening, to revival, to gospel renewal. So, how should we think about gospel renewal? How should we think about spiritual awakening corporately? Another way to ask it is, how should we view what it looks like for God to bring awakening to his church, specifically our church? And obviously, we could talk about this for a year, right? We could talk about spiritual awakening and revival for a year and never run out of good things to say about it. But I just want to look at three things real quickly, real briefly. First, I want to look at who brings spiritual awakening Secondly, I want to talk about where spiritual awakening begins. And finally, the experience of spiritual awakening. Or at least a snapshot of it. First, revival only comes to any people by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Spirit. It can't be manufactured. It can't be produced by us. And we'll talk more about that next week. But this is why Jesus uses the identity that he has for himself in verse 1. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember in Revelation, as in much of scripture, the number seven refers to that which is unending and eternal and infinite. Like the seven days of a week that just keep going and going and restarting like a circle. So in this context... The seven spirits of God is another way to say the eternal spirit, the infinite spirit, the Holy Spirit who is God himself. Jesus, in other words, is claiming to be the one who has the spirit and who can give the spirit. And throughout scripture, the spirit is the divine person who's most associated with power, wind, breath, life. And what does a dead church need? It needs life. It needs to be brought to wakefulness. And Jesus is saying, I have the life-giving Holy Spirit. He's mine. And I will give him and his ministry of revival and renewal to you. And so what does this mean for us? We should ask him. We should ask them. All movements of gospel renewal, either individually or corporately, they begin with prayer. Corporate prayer. Prayers by leaders, by pastors, by elders, by deacons. Prayer groups. Prayer Bible studies. Prayers from children and youth. Prayers from the old and young alike. We ask God for the renewing power of his spirit. So that's who brings it. God the Holy Spirit brings awakening. But where does he do it? When God's spirit begins to move. To bring awakening to his people. It can look like a number of things outwardly. We'll talk about that next week too. But the most important thing. Is what the spirit does inwardly. In other words. The focus of the spirit. Is. Is always on our hearts. That's always what he's concerned about. What he's always concerned about, as we read again and again and again in Deuteronomy, is our hearts. And the heart is more than just our emotions. It's true that we feel emotions in our hearts, but we also think in our hearts, and we reason in our hearts, and we make decisions from the heart. Tim Keller says that our heart is the center of our personality, the seat of our fundamental commitments, the control center of the whole person. This means that the spirit is after, among other things, what Jonathan Edwards would call the great Puritan American Puritan theologian, our affections. You can't just reduce affections to what you're feeling at the moment to just an emotion. An emotion is too wispy to get a hold of what affections really entails. He's after your affections, which means he's after your desires. He's after your wants. He's after your thirsts. And that entails all kinds of things. Our wants and motives, our thirsts, entails our thoughts, our feelings, our wills, our commitments. And it's these things that drive what we do. This is the starting place of revival. The heart. That's where it happens. Thirdly, experiencing spiritual awakening means experiencing a life-changing recovery of the gospel. A life-changing recovery of the gospel for yourself. This is why Uh, many pastors, Tim Keller being one of them, prefers the term gospel renewal to revival because it's through a reacquaintance with the gospel. It's through a reacquaintance with how deep our sin goes, but how much deeper grace goes to redeem us. It's through feeling and experiencing and seeing these things anew that our affections are drawn to God. Because what happens is that our spiritual forgetting for us in our time, in our place, usually runs one of two ways. Churches, corporately, churches that have a more progressive and a more kind of theologically liberal bent, they'll tend to compromise with the secular culture. They'll congratulate themselves for being more tolerant of other views, more loving, more socially aware. In other words, by feeling... Self-justified and self-righteous about their tolerance and condemning others maybe who aren't as tolerant as them. But for them it ends up in self-justification, self-righteousness. They'll feel more justified and self-righteous about the social justice issues that they care about while looking down on others who maybe aren't as enthusiastic about those same causes as they are. But for churches and denominations that are more conservative in their theology and culture, they'll tend to slide away from the gospel, not so much through compromise with the secular culture, as much as cocooning themselves in kind of a warm, secure religiosity. Moral do's and don'ts. Sending our kids to the right schools. Raising our kids this way instead of that way. Making family-friendly entertainment choices. We could add mountains to the list, and we usually do. But the point is we begin to feel self-justified and self-righteous along lines which a more conservative religious culture is going to find agreeable. And then for those who feel like they're living up to their ideals, who are measuring up to their own standards, whether they're progressive or conservative... They're filled with pride and a reason to look down on others with criticism. And for those of us who feel as though we're never living up to our ideals, we're never making the mark, we feel constant guilt and fear and a need to grasp for control of our circumstances and others. And here's the point. Both of these paths eat away at spiritual vitality. Both of these paths cause spiritual leprosy, spiritual deadness, because both equally take our eyes off the gospel as the way to intimacy with God and replace it with self-justification in some sense, in some way. So when the Spirit begins to address the heart, he does it in the words of Jesus in verse 3 by causing us to remember, to retaste To re-experience what we received and heard through Jesus as we believed on him in the gospel. And so what does this look like for various folks, various people in the church? Well, for those who are prideful, those who feel as though they generally live up to their standards. For the person who always has to be right, who always has to win the argument who can never be criticized by others because it's just going to destroy their own self-view, who can never admit specific wrongs, who can never ask for specific forgiveness, who's never happy unless they're able to look down on others instead of feeling sympathy for them. For the gospel comes to such a one and makes them humble. It makes them humble because they taste they experience once again that their evil is so deep that they needed Jesus to die for them. It makes them caring and tolerant of others, even if they disagree, and it takes the sword out of their hand because they realize that it's through Jesus' sacrifice that they have fellowship with God. It's through His sacrifice that they know the truth they know. It's not because they're smarter or more intelligent. Or better than others. But for those who are insecure... And those who are fearful... The guilty person who feels like they can never live up to their standards... Who often feels a crushing sense of failure... That can feel paralyzing at times... Because it keeps them from moving forward on anything. The person who feels socially awkward and judged who lacks confidence in sharing with others, believing that they have nothing to contribute. The gospel comes and renews their hearts and reminds them that they're so incredibly loved by God that he joyfully sent his son to give his life for them. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Because he wanted them. And this deep sense of being loved so gives incredible confidence. It gives incredible confidence that doesn't become pride. And those believers at Sardis, in verse 4, who had not soiled their garments, who'd not given themselves over to idols of religiosity that brings forgetting, Jesus says that they will walk with him in white garments. And what are these garments? These garments are the new identities that we have in Jesus that only He can give a person. Like Brian read for us earlier from Genesis chapter 35, when God renewed His covenant, when He renewed His gospel promises, and when He gave a spiritual awakening to Jacob and His family, Jacob's family put away their idols and put on new clothes. They put on new garments. It's an Old Testament picture of the identities that Jesus gives us. Robes that are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so Jesus tells an almost dead church, let me take away your filthy grave clothes, your burial shroud. Let me wake you up. Let me bring you to life by my spirit. Let me cause you to fall in love with the gospel and with me all over again. And let me remind you that you have a wedding gown. Bright and clean and washed in my blood to wear instead. And so let's ask him to do this for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son. And of the Holy Spirit. And so Lord Jesus we do ask you. As the one who has the seven spirits of God. The one who has the Holy Spirit. The one who has all power. On heaven and on earth. The one who does promise. To to never leave us nor forsake us. We ask you. To give us awakening in our hearts. To let us taste anew. Not new truths, very old truths. To taste anew. Things that we confess, things we began believing so long ago for lots of us. Things that maybe we just began believing yesterday. Maybe things we began believing this morning. But Lord Jesus, we ask that by your Spirit, you would bring new life to us corporately as a church. To see what that would look like for us in Dallas, Texas. To see what that would look like for us in our own individual lives. As our loves and our affections for the truths of the gospel, our loves and affections for you grow hot. Would you do this for us? Because we cannot do it for ourselves. Lord, we need you to do it. We ask you to do these things in your own name, Lord Jesus, and by your Holy Spirit. Amen.